Welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and Caroline is not joining us today, but tune in next week. She'll be back with us then. Our guest today, um, man, I'm, uh, well, let, let me just... Let me just introduce her. This is a really, really important book and very um, gripping, let's say. Melissa Phoebos is the author of the memoir, Whip Smart, the essay collection, Abandon Me, and a writing craft book, Body Work. She is the inaugural winner of the Jean Cordovo Nonfiction Prize from Lambda Library and the recipient of fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, McDowell, Breadloaf and others. Her essays have appeared in the Paris Review, The Believer, The New York Times, and many other places. She is an associate professor at the University of Iowa, where she teaches in the nonfiction writing program. And the book that we're talking about today is a collection of essays called Girlhood. Welcome to Writer's Voices, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. Are you in Iowa today? I am. I'm in Iowa City where it's a gloomy, muggy day. Well, I'm just down the road in Fairfield where it's also a gloomy, muggy day. (laughs) So So, um, I was in Iowa City last weekend. It was just every time I go there, I feel like I feel like, man, I feel different in Iowa City than I do anywhere else. And I feel would I feel this way if I lived here or would it wear off? And it's I sort mean, of, yeah, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> I think it would probably wear off, but it is a special place, especially if you're someone who cares about writing or writers. It's just thick with us. You can't, you know, everyone from the barista to the cab driver is like working on their novel. Um, and I don't know, I moved here in 2020 after, you know, 21 years in New York and I've been really happy here. So wow. Um, where, where what part of Iowa City do you live in? Don't give away too much. We I, don't want any. <laughs> I live in sort of. I live on the east side, uh, uh, sort of by Hickory Hill Park. Okay. Okay. I haven't gotten out around into the neighborhoods that much. I'm mostly just downtown when I'm there, and mm-hmm. and there's all this new construction, new condos. Um, Mm-hmm. downtown and it's it's changed a lot in the last 10 years let's say and um it's kind of it's kind of fun to watch now i spend a third of my time in austin texas which mm-hmm. is also a very artistic community mm-hmm. and also growing a lot and the like the skyline that i can see from my condo has is completely different than it was 10 years ago when I bought the place it's unrecognizably different so Mm. and I think that's Mm -hmm. part of the you know the energy of those places you know that what makes them Mm -hmm. so appealing is that they're changing yep I think that's right I think that's right and of course it's relative right like I was talking to someone just yesterday who said oh I hear that there's 
skyscrapers in Iowa City now. And I was like, you are talking to the wrong woman because my idea of skyscrapers does not match anything in Iowa City. Yeah, what are, are we up, what, 10 stories, maybe 12? 12. There's one building that has 12, and it was a big hullabaloo, let me tell you. I bet. Well, in Fairfield, I, for quite a while, had – my office, I think, on the tallest building, and it was on the third floor. So, <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, it's it's relative. I will say, I went back to New York um, last week for some work stuff, and I've gone soft. I was like has it always been this loud? And mm. I was there with my mother and she was like, yes, <laughs> it most certainly has always been this loud. I was like, oh, wow. The, the, okay, the so quiet I, green. I have a question for you. Does everyone sure. still wear black and gray everywhere in New York? In New York? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I haven't been for a few years from the, I used to go every summer for a, a Broadway yeah. trip, and, and um, yeah. I quickly learned not to wear my brighter colors. <laughs> yeah, how else can you hide all of the grime that accumulates on yeah. you walking around in New York? I figured I mean, I that was it. I wear all black in Iowa City. Yeah, I wear all black here, and my wife is always like, oh, my God, you can tell you're a New Yorker from, like, mm -hmm. six blocks away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so Girlhood, this book came out as a hardcover last year. Mm -hmm, oh, mm -hmm. And now it's and now it's coming out in um as paperback. And mm -hmm. what what was what would be your elevator pitch for what this book is? Well, I would say that Girlhood is um it takes the experiences of my adolescence um, particularly around sexuality and body image and really sort of dissects the lessons and conditioning and patterns that were established at that age and tracks them as they play out into adulthood and really sort of asks the question of what it takes to undo that conditioning to free yourself from those patterns as an adult. And of course I talked to a bunch of other women and, um, but the sort of core of it is, is memoir but you also delve in quite a bit to kind of psychological studies and research mm -hmm. and you know but you're right the core is definitely memoir and very um brutally honest i would i would mm -hmm. say and so that's one of the things i'd like to talk about is how you're able to do that <laughs> how how do you <laughs> I'll I mean, my <laughs> you, you talk about boundaries a lot and in this book and and learning to set boundaries and which I find really, um, really interesting. But in a way, you're you're sort of opening yourself up completely by writing these things. Mm -hmm. So how do mm -hmm. those two <laughs> two things fit? Well. I mean, I can say that the key for me is that I write a book in total privacy, you know? Um, I think when people read it, they're imagining that I am just, you know, sort of exposing these really intimate things and just 
having the experience of being seen because they're sort of looking at me on the page, right? Right. And I wrote the book probably five years earlier. <laughs> you know, I started writing it five years earlier and I sat alone in a room with it for years before anyone else ever saw it. And so for me, like the relationship that I have to my subject matter when I start writing about it totally transformed by the process of writing. So by the time the book makes its way to readers, it no longer feels that vulnerable to me. Like I've processed it, I've integrated it, I've found words for it, I've made friends with it, you know? And so, um, and the other thing is that I don't have to stand there while people read it. I get to be hiding out <laughs> in my house. <laughs> if, I had to, if I had to read my book to everyone who read it, um, I don't think I would be a writer because I'm actually too secretive for that. So I have to write it like a little note and then pass it to the world in a book. <laughs> and there was something that you said in there that I wanted to follow up on, um, but then you said so much more that I lost it. <laughs> um, so you spend, you when you're, oh, this is what, it, so in a way, you say the process of writing transforms forms your relationship with the subject matter so it is it is healing to you the writing itself mm -hmm. is healing and I'm it kind is. of guessing that's part of what your book about writing is about it absolutely is you know yeah. and I think it's that's not I don't think well gee this experience feels painful to think about so I'm gonna go heal myself by writing about it <laughs> um it really is sort of um, so important for me to be compelled by and distracted by the the puzzle of making art out of it, right? And it, and it helps work as a kind of mediator for me because I don't have to say, I'm just going to go walk straight towards my most painful memories and, and reconstruct those events because that is a really unattractive <laughs> task. But if I think I am going to find a way to represent this so that it is beautiful and meaningful for other people and sort of figure out the aesthetic challenge of it, that is really interesting to me. It's sort of the puzzle of making art that enables me to write about really hard things because I'm distracted by the art of it. And then, you know, by the end, surprise, surprise, I end up healing myself again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, the, you know, I, as I was reading this, of course, as a woman, I'm thinking back to my own experiences um, growing up, mm -hmm. but they were uh, longer ago than yours. And mm -hmm. so maybe um, the memories are more distant and not, not quite as easy to, to bring up. But I don't, I don't, there were things, there certainly are things that you say that, that resonate with me, but there were a lot that, that I did not have the experience of and may, and part of it may have been, um, you were an early bloomer in terms mm -hmm. of your physical development. That's kind of a, um, a key point and and the re, the response that you got from the world around you at an age where you really didn't know what to do with it i was a very mm -hmm. late developer and i wonder mm -hmm. if that made it may have made it very different for me 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think that is really sort of your question gets to the core of so much of what I was circling around in this book, which is that there's no way to win <laughs> being a girl, right? Like you either develop early and you're sort of punished for that, or you develop late and you're punished for that. Or maybe you develop right on the schedule with everyone else and then you feel like you don't stand out enough like they're really <laughs> the way the way that I experienced being a girl was that it was never quite right that I was always the task of being a girl was always trying to fix myself and make myself into this some this ineffable ideal that was just impossible and so it was the cycle that that led me to sort of constantly berating and judging and scrutinizing myself and and distracted from the things I might have been doing otherwise. That's, we hear a lot about, what is it, the Ophelia complex? Mm -hmm. I think there was a whole mm -hmm. book about that. And you do talk mm -hmm. about Ophelia a little bit. Who, who was Ophelia and how does, how does that relate? Oh, um, I actually don't talk about Ophelia. Oh, you don't? Okay. <laughs> For some reason. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I thought I, I thought there was some ref. No, it's Persephone and Demetrius that you're talking Persephone, about. Persephone. Yes, right. that's I'm right. sorry. I was like, oh no, did I forget what was in here? It has happened. It has happened. Yeah, Persephone. Um, right. So in in one of the essays, it's called Sesmophoria. I it's an essay that's really about my relationship with my with mother, um, to whom I've always been very, very close and to whom I'm very close now. Um, but during my adolescence, we had, you know, as many mothers and daughters do, a, a really sort of dramatic rupture in our relationship. Um, and I used the Demeter and Persephone myth, the, the Greek myth, to sort of as an analogy for our relationship. And, you know, they were very close. And then um, Persephone, you know, married Hades or was abducted by Hades, depending on the version you read of it. Um, and he, but mostly he abducts her and um, takes her to the underworld. And then she's basically, it strikes this deal where she is consigned to spend half of her life in the underworld with him and half of her life with her mother and her mother. Demeter goes through this huge grieving process, which kind of explains the seasons in, in Greek mythology. But I found it, um, you know, in a way it felt like, oh, am I really going to use this myth? It feels like a little bit of a cliche to talk about a mother-daughter relationship, but I really felt so specific, you know, it felt so true. And it was comforting for me to have this kind of archetypal really mother-daughter relationship that so mirrored my own because I was a daughter who had sort of spent a lot of time in various underworlds and I would return back to my mother whether it was sort of moving out when I was just a teenager or experiences with addiction um, I, I spent a lot of time sort of chasing experiences that were um, baffling to my mother and quite scary for her, but I always sort of came home, right? And I've learned to kind of reconcile the different instincts that she and I have and the ways that we're able to maintain a relationship despite those differences. Well, one of the things that I, as a mother, appreciated, um, and I'm, I'm guessing you're close to my daughter's age, actually, but um, that I appreciate about, appreciated about this is 
although you were writing about a very traumatic um, adolescence, you never blame your parents for it. Mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Quite I, the opposite, know. yeah. <laughs> and And I think that ends up being one of the points of the book is that, you know, my parents and my mother in particular were wonderful. Like they loved me so well. There's just no parent is a match for the challenges that beset girls and really all kids, but particularly girls at that age. Like no mom can counteract, uh, you know, centuries of like sexism and sexual objectification of girls. Like there's just nothing she could have done. And, and, you know, in, in my career could, you know, accurately be described as one of writing about things that no mother ever wants to read about her daughter. Right. It's just, <laughs> um, I have put her through it and, and she is an amazing woman. And she's asked me many times, like, what could I have done? Is there something I could have done differently? And I, with no hesitation, I say to her, absolutely not. Like you did, I knew that you were available to me, you know, and that if I had asked for help, you would have been there. I just couldn't, you know, it's just the shame was too great. My secrecy was too great. It was just too, it was too much. And what, and what I think she was able to do, which she couldn't see at the time and which most mothers of adolescent girls can't see at the time is that she gave me this foundation of love and support and self-esteem that I, I was able to come back to on the other side of it. And, and I absolutely, I mean, I dedicated the book to her and I would not be here talking to you today probably if I did not have her for a mother. Well, on the, that's very, that's so beautiful, but it's also so distressing mm-hmm. to realize that, that there is, that, that we can't protect our daughters. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, mm-hmm. you know, what, what did I miss that was going on with my daughter at that age? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm almost I mean, afraid you know- to ask her. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it it can be tricky because I actually do think there are some things that parents don't need to know about their kids because there's nothing they can do and they'll torment themselves with it. But at the same time, me being a writer and particularly the kind of writer I am, it has forced conversations with my mother that we wouldn't have had otherwise and because she's amazing we're closer as a result of it right because she's been able to to hear it you know Mm. and we know each other so well you know like there's really like you know for better and worse nothing unspoken (laughs) and so There are some things I wish that I could have protected her from. I could have said, you know what? Just don't read these pages. You don't need that. You know, I really (laughs) wish I could have. But, you know, she's a psychotherapist. She is a, she's not, that's not an option. So she, she knows it all. Um, Now she became a psychotherapist like during your, during this time, right? Yeah. Yeah, she did. And so she was going to school. And you were going mm-hmm. to school and, um, mm-hmm. yeah, was that, mm-hmm. 
you know, I think it's really cool that you both, that you, that you're, that you seem so supportive of your mother too. That's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In many ways, I think we've, you know, done a lot of growing up together. And I think that's probably true of a lot of mothers and daughters, you know, like she was in her twenties when I was born and still a kid in many ways, like figuring stuff out. And she has, she is someone who has, committed herself to growing for the for her whole life you know and so she has changed a lot and she's modeled that for me and you can see it in my work right where I just have always known that it's possible to change and to change your mind and change your career and she has really sort of followed her path like really found her calling and she has this incredible career and um, is a really fulfilled, ambitious, busy, like inspiring person, you know? So um, I, I really feel like I just won the lottery. <laughs> and we often tend to blame um, if a, if a teenage girl is um, mm-hmm. acting out or becomes addicted or, or, mm-hmm. you know, any of these things that we often blame father but you also had a great dad I did I did I had a great dad and you know and I think it was really distressing because there is um there's addiction on both sides of my family and both my parents like warned me and if there was something you could do to prevent someone from being an addict, they, they would have done it. They did everything they could, you know? And I think just the heartbreak of being a a parent and a person is that you can't control someone else's destiny. Like you cannot protect people from, from hurt and from hurting themselves. And, um, but I really do think that that foundation of being really loved, like really feeling unconditionally loved as a kid, um, it just gave me a kind of self-esteem that I was like, you know what, this isn't how, this isn't how I want to die. You know, like, I think there are, I think there are better things for me. Um, And, and also, you know, my mom's a therapist. So I was like, well, I guess I know where to go. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I had all the information, you know? Um, And, and yeah, so it's, it's, I don't know. I, I have all the respect in the world for them. And, um, I, I wasn't an easy kid to raise, but um, I have a great rela- I have a great relationship with both of them today. Well, I I used to like to tell other parents, your job isn't to raise a good child. Your job mm. is to raise a a fulfilled adult. Oh, that is profound. I wish that <laughs> seriously. I really I think that it was so painful for my parents and my childhood because they thought look at her she's so upset she was she's doing all these things like what are we doing wrong but they weren't doing anything wrong you just it's a long game you know parenting is a real long game you don't get to see the finished product for a really long time (laughs) you know I mean if ever and and so it's so painful, but that is, you know, I'm going to put that in my pocket and, and share that with my mom next time I talk to her Aww. because it's really true. It's a slow bait. Yeah, absolutely. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Melissa Phoebos, author of Girlhood. So did you sit down to write this as a book, or were they individual essays that you later collected into a book? <laughs> 
I definitely had to start with individual ethics, partly because I, I needed to trick myself. Because if I had <laughs> thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to spend the next three years sifting back through my hardest experiences, and I'm going to write 300 pages about them. I would have been like, no, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to go come up with a different idea because that does not sound like fun. Um and so, and this is a, this is a sort of trick that I've played on myself many times and I always fall for it because I want to, you know? Um, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to write this one essay about this bully I had as an adolescent. And then I write the essay and it's this really intense process. And I think, Ooh, I'm glad that's over. I'm going to go write something whimsical and fun now. And then I go write another like sort of deep and wrenching essay. And I think, Ooh, one more, but at least now I can go write something fun. Um, and and I, I make my way through about five or six essays, and then it's, it's really impossible to ignore the fact that I am writing a book. And so I admitted that to myself. But I was probably like, yeah, I was probably like four or five essays in before I was like, okay, <laughs> I see what's happening here. <laughs> and were any of these essays published in, independently? They were, you know, I think the earliest one, let's see, the earliest one was published in like 2015 or 2016, um, but most of them were not. Most of them came out a little bit later. Um, and, you know, writing a book is such a long haul. It's really, it's really encouraging for me to have a sense of completion and to share the work with people and to get a sense of how readers are going to respond to it, you know? So it's one of the things I love about essay collections is that you can finish things along the way. Ah, uh, you know? yes, yes. And you, you can get that feedback and that sort of, that's right. The reward, right. you can get some of the reward before, before yeah, exactly. you're completely done. <laughs> Exactly. And you can also say to your publisher, look, these essays might be very depressing and upsetting, but people like them. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to read a little bit from the book for us? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm going to read a little excerpt from an essay that comes early in the book, and it's called The Mirror Chest. In fourth grade, Vicki and I were friends which meant that we attended sleepovers at each other's houses, played invented games during recess with the same group of girl classmates, and our mothers had each other's numbers. Vicky and I had the same birthday, though by the summer before fifth grade, I understood that our differences far outweighed our similarities. Vicky lived in a characterless mansion on the west side of our town in a housing development of identical mansions. I lived in a gray shingled house in the woods with a tiny black and white television and cabinets full of foods no one at school had ever heard of. Vicky had more Barbies than friends, and she was very popular. Most notably, Vicky had a pale white popsicle body and freckled cheeks, while I was the first girl in our grade with breasts. Vicky had an early pool party for her birthday, our birthday, but she didn't ask me to share it, and it didn't occur to me that she might have for many years. Now I can see how shrewd that choice, how better for both of us, how awkward it would have been for her to preside over both of our birthdays. 
In her spacious backyard, she commanded us as she did on the school playground, except on that day she did so in a pink bikini. The other girls also scampered around her yard in their bathing suits, legs straight as clothespins, bellies bright white, chests flat and unmoving as they ran. I kept my t-shirt on. Underneath it, I wore a bright green one-piece with a decorative zipper on the front, bought on sale at the TJ Maxx in town, not the Gap or Puritan, places where I thought only rich people like Vicky shopped. I would have worn a snowsuit if I could. As we sat around the table eating pizza, a girl complimented Vicky on her suit. Vicky waved dismissively as she took a bite, then swiped a dribble of grease from her chin with a paper napkin. We all watched her chew and then regally swallow. This is for babies without boobs, she explained. When I have boobs, I'm going to get one of those suits with a zipper right here. She pointed coyly at her pink top, and I'm going to unzip it all the way down to here. She dragged her finger down until the whole cohort laughed, even me with my heart in my gut. After presents, Vicky ordered us all into the pool. I lingered at the table and tried to demur, but she insisted, and so I waded into the shallow end with my T-shirt on, its wet hem sticking to my thighs as the whole party watched. No, Melissa, Vicky shouted, exasperated. Take your T-shirt off. You can't play with a T-shirt on. Someone giggled. I stared down at the blue water, my feet rippling at the bottom. Then I squeezed my eyes shut and pulled off my shirt. No one said anything. They didn't have to. If I had hoped that it might be seen as luck, me in possession of that thing they all wanted, most of all Vicky, then my hope sank before my shirt hit the concrete. They stared at my zippered swimsuit. No, they stared at my body. And in those scorching moments, the blue water turned flame. I knew that there are some people we love for having the things we don't and some people we hate for the same reason. Though I had spent hours staring in the mirror at that age, I hadn't yet learned how to see my own changed body. That afternoon, I glimpsed her, a glimmering double that others could also see. That was the only thing they could see of me. Vicky and I never played again, not because what girls did at recess or on the weekends was no longer playing, instead a kind of work to become an impossible thing and to discipline the bodies that failed worst at this, but because she had recognized that we were different, a fact I'd already known. It would be another year before anyone would spit in my face, before Vicky or anyone would call me a slut or threaten me or prank call my home. But by the time it happened, I already knew who they meant. I'll stop there. Thank you. And that was Melissa Phoebos reading from Girlhood. Melissa, I'd like to talk to you about how your, your path from um, to becoming a writer I'm sure you would address that more in some of your other books, but because um, in this book we don't really we don't really get to that too much. How did you? Mm-hmm. At, at what point did you decide you wanted to be a writer? And were you were you writing? Were you keeping a journal during your girlhood? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I was one of these really weird little kids who knew what I wanted to be <laughs> from like really early. Um, and so, yeah, when I was 
I was keeping journals probably from the age of like eight or nine um, until now, forever. Um, <laughs> and and I was so, I was such a reader and I found such comfort in both reading and writing. I think as soon as I realized that a writer was a thing you could be, I thought that's it. That's, that's pretty much the only thing I could imagine myself doing like forever. And so I started, you know, really sort of arrogant too. I started calling myself a writer by the time I was probably 10. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely not a prerequisite for being a writer, but, um, but it really has been the only thing I ever wanted to do. And <laughs> excuse me, did you go to college for that? I mean, you must have eventually because you're teaching at a college now, and I think they That's make right. you go That's first. Right. <laughs> I do. You know, I had a pretty unconventional early education, so I was always a really good student because I liked learning, but I also kind of hated school because I was very um, strong-willed and very um, – I just knew what I wanted to do, and I wanted to just – do it and in school they were making us do all these other things you mm. know so when I was in high school and this was partly as a result of the experiences of my adolescence I was like I don't fit here um I don't have a lot in common with these people meaning my peers and by the time I was finishing freshman year of high school I dropped out of school and I basically like my mom was like, you're not happy here. What do you want to do? And I was like, I want to read and write and learn what I want to learn. And I don't want to have to be in classes with these people anymore. And she was like, okay. And you know, there was no internet at the time. And so we didn't really know what our options were, you know? And so I ended up just, I had a really unhelpful um, guidance counselor. And I, I, just <laughs> I had one I too. Like, <laughs> Yeah, amazing. A lot of us did. Yeah. Um, so I dropped out and I homeschooled myself and I got my GED. And then eventually, then I took college classes, um, like night school. I went to like a continuing ed program and I got good grades and college level classes. And then I applied to college. Um, and I knew that I would only be able to go to like pretty artsy colleges. So I only applied to two, and I ended up going to college in New York to the New School University, which was the perfect place for sort of brainy uh, rebel like me. Um, yeah, and then my track gets a little bit more conventional. So I finished college, and then I went to graduate school at Sarah Lawrence College a few years after that um, and started teaching by the time I was in grad school. Wow. And But you had a few detours in between there. <laughs> I did. I did. I had, <laughs> I had a few detours. Um, and yeah, when I was in college, by the time I was in college, I was basically living a double life. And I had, I was in active addiction. I was addicted to heroin. And I was working while I was in college, I started working as a professional dominatrix. And so um, I had a lot going on <laughs> in my early 20s. Um, and the interim in between undergrad and grad school, I basically, um, got sober and quit working as a professional dominatrix and then went immediately into grad school. So I was like ready 
to write. Mm. I had some stuff to write about, <laughs> and I was ready to work. I had sort of gotten my act together. I had some tools for living. Um, and, you know, it's funny because I felt so old. And now I'm like, I was 25. <laughs> you know, I was not old. But I had lived a lot for a 25-year-old. So I was ready. I was ready to really figure out how I wanted to develop a practice of writing for the rest of my life. And I really, I, I accomplished that. Well, if you hadn't had all of those experiences, which, um, you know, in some ways may seem like negative experiences, you probably would have had to end up writing fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. And you know what? I actually was writing fiction because I never even, I don't know. It was like, you know, growing up, I wasn't, I didn't know that a memoirist was really like a thing. I just didn't even occur to me. So I thought I actually went to my graduate program in fiction. Oh, and wow. I thought I'm going to write. Yeah. I thought I'm going to write novels because that's what heroes write. That's, those are the books I love. I didn't really even differentiate between memoirs and novels. And it wasn't until I was there writing and a professor of mine, I wrote this little nonfiction piece, um, I was I was working on a novel that was like a very thinly veiled memoir and this professor was like do you have more material like this and I was like oh yeah I have endless material like this and he was like I think you're writing a memoir and I was like oh no 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 I am not writing a memoir and he was like I'm so sorry but I think that you are <laughs> and he was right wow now if you had the difference between writing a memoir, of course, and writing a thinly veiled memoir in the form of a novel is that you have to kind of stick to what really happened mm -hmm. in the memoir mm -hmm. and you don't have to in the novel. Did you ever think maybe I'd rather just have the freedom of not having to be completely honest here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> every time that I sit down to write. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I definitely think about it every time I publish a book and then suddenly everyone I know knows everything that I couldn't say out loud. Um, yeah, I absolutely fantasize about the freedom, not only of being able to invest, but the freedom of being like, uh, you know, oh, no, I just made it up. That's not, that didn't actually happen. Mm. So I'm not going to answer that very personal question about it. <laughs> But the thing for me, it's like I could, right? I could write fiction if I wanted to. I yeah. could um, push it into the realm of invention if that felt right. But it just almost never does, mm -hmm. you know? Um, there is something about being bound to what happened and the very – I mean, honestly, I think it is about boundaries in a way where it's like the limited nature of experience – he, it sort of pens me in artistically in a way that makes the writing a kind of puzzle, right? Like I can't just invent my way out of a difficult scene. Like I have to work with what happened and I have to figure out how to make meaning out of what happened. And the side effect of that is that it gives me insight into my own experience. And that, however painful that is, it always feels worth it to me. It feels incredibly precious to me. And so I just can't stop doing it. <laughs> mm. And of course, you also don't have to spend time figuring out a plot. 
Well, unfortunately, I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> the kind of writer that I am, you know, I sort of hoped that in writing a memoir, I would be like, well, there's what happened. I just have to write through what happened. But as it turns out, there is so much more that happened than a good plot would make, right? And so I think the thing with fiction is that you have to invent what happened. And with memoir is you have to leave out almost everything that happened, right? Ah. Because, you know, if you're writing about an experience that took place over four years, like imagine all the things you could include. All of the, you know, my first book took place over three or four years. And there were like, huge family deaths that took place, many relationships, tons of more micro experiences, but I'm only telling the story of one thread wound over the course of four years. So I have to figure out how to sort of pluck that thread out of really the infinity of things I could possibly include. So it's just a different kind of work. Oh, absolutely. So and and not just knowing what to leave out, but also kind of what order to tell things in. Because it isn't always, yeah, exactly. you know, chron it's not always chronological. Yeah, exactly. I think that that, that is the art of memoir. And that is the thing that, that people who don't write it don't really have a conception of. There is this misconception that writing memoir is easier in some way than writing fiction. And by God, it's not. Um because there is, there is, you have to, uh, you have to build a compelling and pleasurable story out of a huge amount of material in your life, right? And that means like the careful release of information so that the reader keeps wondering what's happening. And in a way, I think it's harder because it feels sort of personally violating to do that with your life you know it's like there is just a kind of instinctual faith that we have to what happened in the order that it happened but what happened in the order that it happened does not always a an entertaining story make you know and so you really have to sort of play around with it and um, let go of your attachment to the exact way that things happen because you have to you have to create a nice experience for your reader. Right, right. So are you the type of writer who will who writes a first draft very quickly and then goes back later and works you know, reworks it? Or are you the type that yeah. works as yeah. you go? I would say I'm somewhere in the middle. Okay. My instinct is to work as I go because I am a perfectionist. And I want every sentence to be beautiful and perfect before I move on to the next one. But if I yielded to those instincts, it would take me 10 times as long to finish a book, right? So I sort of push myself through. And I can't entirely write like a really fast or, you know, Anne Lamott has a, has an, a chapter in her craft book called Shitty First Draft. And I can't quite stomach a truly shitty first draft. <laughs> um, but I do the best I can, you know. Um and so I would say I, you know, when I'm doing a first draft, I often will sort of give myself a word count minimum for the day when I'm writing to just to push myself through. And then, um, and then once I finish the first draft, then I go back and do my big rewrites. But I wish I could just be one of those people that just completely bangs it out. Mm. Um, but I can't. I'm too obsessive. Do you end up 
um, writing a lot more than what what ends up in the final book or the final piece? Oh, God, tragically, <laughs> yes. Uh, I know. I really, you know, I do think there are writers who sort of write skinny first draft and then need to, like, bulk it up. Mm-hmm. And I'm jealous of that because <laughs> I vastly overwrite my drafts and then – I have to go back and and painfully carve away from all of my hard work. Yeah, I would say that I write at least double what ends up being in the final draft. And that goes for essays, books. Um, I am an overwriter. I have (laughs) a lot to say, and I need to sort of carve my work out of those first drafts. At what point do you let someone else read what you're writing? Ooh, you know what? This has changed over time. Um, because I think when I was younger, I didn't trust my instincts and I hadn't really developed my instincts. And so I needed to check with other people a lot. And I was also in school, so I was in sort of workshops and getting a lot of feedback. And at this point, pretty far into the process, you know, I definitely have a complete first draft and it's probably not even a first draft. It's probably more of a a third or a fourth draft of something when I really, it's like, I want to get as far as I can before I show it to anyone else. Like I really want to get to a point where I sort of know exactly what kind of feedback I need and I'm not sure what to do next. Right. And so I'm, I'm rarely like, here's this, what do you think? I'm like, here's this. I need some feedback in this area. Right. Like how's the plot working? Does it drag? Is the research bogging me down? Like I have specific questions, you know, um, but that 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 has really that's at a place where I think I really know my own style and I really know my sort of weak spots. And so it's very uh, sort of zeroed in. But it took me like decades to get there because I was still figuring out what kind of writer I was. Mm. Now, you mentioned the you know, does the research bog you down? So you do have a lot of kind of academic asides in here. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. are these things that you already knew or do you go out looking for this information uh, specifically for as you're writing? Um, or both? Kind of in- <laughs> yeah. yeah, kind of in between. Kind of in between. I think I start with, I start with um, stuff that sort of crosses my path or that I already sort of know about. And then I cast a pretty wide net and I'm generally sort of writing and researching at the same time. So for instance, the essay that I read from the mirror test has a lot of research in it and interviews with other people. And I started by sort of uh, revisiting things that I was already familiar with. I reread Edith Wharton's The House of Mirth. And I went and watched the movie EVA and Jamaica Kincaid's short story Girl. And then I started sort of digging. Once I got into the writing, I started figuring out like where my questions were and what I wanted to know more about. And then I started like asking for recommendations and going to the librarian at my university and um, scrolling through like academic databases. And, and at that point I'm obsessed with my topic. So I'm talking about it all the time and other people <laughs> are making recommendations. And my wife was like, Oh, you have to go read this Lacan essay. And 
try to go read Lacan and then, you know, and a very small percentage of those things end up in the essay. But, you know, I'm still that like curious, like kind of voraciously reading person that I was as a kid. And part of why I wanted to be a writer was because I got to sort of like make an independent study of whatever I wanted for the rest of my life. <laughs> and that has really been true, you know? Um, so I get to sort of like read really deeply into something for like a period of months or years. And then I get to move on as soon as I'm done and I'm no longer interested. Wow. Now you also um, tell other people's stories in some mm -hmm. of these essays. And how did you find these stories to share? Well, I think with this book, you know, I I started writing about my own adolescence and I got to some revelations that were really profound and you know, I it it became really clear to me that how unlikely it was that I was alone in my experiences. And so it was a really sort of organic move when I started talking to other women about their girlhoods because I was like, "Oh, wow." this actually didn't have anything to do with me personally. This was like a social problem. It wasn't a Melissa problem. And so I started talking to my friends and I started talking to the friends of my friends and that just moved outward until I was interviewing people that I, that I have never met, you know? Um, and I had some of the deepest conversations I've ever had with people um, as a result of sort of doing those interviews. And the other thing was that, you know, I was writing a book called Girlhood, and I knew that my experience was just a narrow sliver of, like, possible girlhoods, and I wanted to have the voices of people who had different kinds of experiences, people who came from different sort of class experiences, different race experiences, different kinds of body experiences. And so I wanted, to, and I didn't want to speak for other women, so I wanted to have their voices in the book. And, and that was another thing that sort of drove my outward reaching for other stories. Do you think that um, the experiences vary by generation or are they similar across generations? Oh, I think they vary a lot. I mean, I think there are both similarities and huge differences, right? And I can see that looking backwards and forwards, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I felt like I got a terrible like formal sex education but I surely got a lot more than my mother's generation did you know um like her mother never even talked to her about sex you know and my mother talked to me about it but then when I look at the generation after me and I talked to some of these women when I was writing girlhood it was like they could just go google things for better and worse you know and they were like the kinds of like sexual harassment that happens on social media. I'm so glad I wasn't exposed to that. It just, I shudder to think. And at the same time, they were able to find community of people outside of the towns that they grew up in, you know? And so it's really, really interesting to see how the things that persist and the opportunities that, that bloom as time goes on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I've, um, I feel like like my generation and older generations, things were just so much more secretive. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there wasn't, I, I remember one time, um, 
first of all, I'm still of the generation where the girls were raised where you just weren't supposed to have sex at all until you were married. Right. And not that some people still still are raised that way. But um, and I remember being, you know, so so when I started having sex, I didn't tell anybody. None of my friends, nobody. Mm. And I thought I was the only one and that I was the bad girl. <laughs> and, mm. and then I remember one time in my senior year in high school sitting with a group of kids and we were the honor students. We were in band and choir and, you know, we were the good kids. And mm -hmm. and someone said, how how many what percentage of our of the girls in our class do you think have had sex? And they were all guessing like 80, 90 percent, which oh, wow. was like I like that must mean they all have too, or they wouldn't be saying that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was mm -hmm. the only conversation that I ever had about it in with my friends in high school. Wow. I know. I mean, I think it's like, I mean, and that's the thing that I came up against so much in writing this book is that it's the isolation, right? Mm -hmm. When we have shame or we're told we're not supposed to do something, we don't talk about it when we do it. And then we don't know what's going on with each other. We don't know that we're all having the same experience and it feels like we're alone, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. do think that's, that is one of the best changes that I've seen is that the girls today are talking about it more with each other, not all the time, but they're talking about it. They can go on social media. They can go find Reddit threads or Facebook groups, or they can find evidence that other girls are having the same experience that they're having. And so I think they can get to the revelation sooner that it's not them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's the culture. Yeah. It's the society. It's not just about them. It's they're not isolated in their experience. So, Melissa, Girlhood was published by Bloomsbury Press, and you've mm -hmm. at least I, at least one of your other books have been Abandoned Me, I think, is on Bloomsbury. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But how did you first find your publisher? So I first found my publisher. Um, well, I I was writing Whipsport, my first book, and shortly after grad school, which is unusual, I tell my grad students, but I had a draft and my first agent sent it out to publishers. And let me tell you, it was rejected by so many people. <laughs> it was rejected. I kid you not by like 30 or 40 editors. Oh my gosh. Were like, uh, they were like, this is a very good writer, but, um, we simply do not know what to do with this dominatrix memoir. <laughs> so sorry. Uh, we don't know how to market this because it's not sexy. Um, it's like very intense. Um, and we don't have any books like this. Uh, and, you know, of course they were you telling us in grad school, you want to write something really original, but you don't want to write something too original. <laughs> and publishers are like, yikes. Yeah. yeah. Um, we got one offer. It was the very last person to respond. Um, I got paid a very small amount for it. And then the book was a huge success. You know, it was like people cannot predict what folks are going to respond to. And so the book really overperformed and <laughs> everybody made money on it. I was on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Um, and yeah, and then the imprint that I was on at St. Martin's Press folded before I finished my second book. And so 
I had to sort of start over and I got a new agent and I uh, found a new publisher, but it was, um, I don't know, you know, like girlhood has been a big success. And I think folks who have been introduced to my work in the last couple of years, I think it's easy when you look at someone who's been doing it for a while to think, Oh, it must've just happened. And it was, belief it was years of sort of clawing my way (laughs) it has not been easy and you know my experience has been that I that I have ultimately gotten the things that I that I wanted but it was never on my timeline it was always took so much longer than I wanted it to you know but um and that's what I tell my students that the tenacity like the stubbornness and sticking to it no matter what is the most important thing you can do. <laughs> it's not the most talented people that publish books. It's the people who never give up. Nevertheless, she persisted. Exactly. <laughs> in every way. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations on, on your success. Um, girlhood is really, um, like I said, gripping, important, and um and I don't know that it's going to change our culture, but maybe it opens a few eyes to what's mm-hmm. to to what girls mm-hmm. have to have to go through. And we are mm-hmm. out of Thank time, you. but I always we always like to close with a quote, and I found one from Roxanne Gay. It is not possible mm-hmm. for girlhood to be represented wholly. Girlhood is too vast mm-hmm. and too individual an experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you, you've probably read that before, and I think it fits with this. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. I think I thought about using it as an epigraph. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices.